Someone once uh, wisely shared that one of the blessings of expository preaching, that is, going verse by verse through the Bible, is that sooner or later you will preach on every subject imaginable. But one of the disadvantages is that sooner or later you will preach on every subject imaginable. Preaching expositionally does mean that as we go through, we will deal with some hot-button issues, and such is the case as we've come to Mark chapter 10, and Jesus is going to talk about the subject of divorce. And I want to invite you to turn there, if you're not already there, to Mark chapter 10. And if I could, I wanted to have an opportunity just to have a shepherding moment with you. Did you know that there are over one million divorces that take place annually in this country? One million. I want you to think about this because it's, it's staggering when you consider the numbers. So it's couples that are getting divorced. So um, one million divorces means two million people, right? And then, of course, there's children involved in these relationships. And so it can mean up to several million uh, people just with parents and children. Now, add to the fact that you have two sets of in-laws. You also have extended family on both sides that get to know and love and, and uh, care for uh, both people, right? And so easily, over the course of the year, we just say, yeah, there's one million divorces, but there's over 12 million people that are impacted. Now, and that's just for one year, Think about the number of people over the course of a decade then. You're talking about um, a quarter of a billion people, right? Or wait, my math, football math, it's kicking in. No, but 10, no, 120, 120 million people. It's a lot. It's a lot. Nobody escapes totally unaffected. And those who have lived through it can testify to the harsh reality that it brings in a home. And I've personally um, had um, the experience of, of knowing two of my siblings in my family that have suffered through divorce. Actually, um, yeah, I just have a sister who's going through a very difficult time currently in her marriage. I have witnessed firsthand the excruciating and devastating effects. And many in the room have as well. Painful custody battles. Battles for children taking place. Lawyers fighting legal battles over property, alimony, child support. It's painful for in-laws, spouses, children, extended family, and friends on all sides. And that being said, I want you to know that as we cover this, I don't wish to stir up any unnecessary uh, pain. I don't wish to uh, pick at any scabs or scars, especially for those who may have been through a divorce yourselves, or your parents have gone through a divorce, or your grandparents, or one of your loved ones. At the same time, I do want you to know that I have a biblical mandate and a responsibility to preach God's Word unapologetically. If God's Word has instruction for us on marriage and divorce that might be hard to hear because of the hardness 
of the human heart, we still need to hear it. Amen? Amen. We do. So let's start by reading Mark 10, verses 1 through 12 together. Getting up, he, Jesus, went from there to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Please pray with me as we ask God to bless our study in his word. Merciful Father, we are asking that you would give us a true and clear understanding of your word. Our society is plagued with divorce. It is plagued with a low view of marriage. Many suffer from the effects of this reality. And we know that you ultimately want your church to understand and give testimony to this world, the high view of marriage, that, that it's possible. And that according to your design, according to your purposes, that you can be glorified through marital relationships as the gospel is put on display. Help us to broaden our understanding of marriage as well as the dangers of divorce. We humbly pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may have already noticed the title in your outline, The Marriage and Divorce Test Part 1. Okay, This will be part one today. We're actually going to cover the first five verses and point number one. And then next Sunday, we'll cover the remaining verses and point depending on how things go it might require a third sunday so just wanted to give you a, a heads up on that in mark 10 1 through 12 jesus features two views of marriage and divorce so that believers will embrace and exalt god's design for marriage perhaps you've heard the dale carnegie quote two men stood in prison looking out the bars one saw the mud, the others saw the stars. When we look at this passage, we should see two different views or perspectives. Yes, we must look at the mud. We must look at the ugliness of divorce and its widely accepted practice in Jesus' day as well as our own. And this also includes looking at the hardness of the human heart and its inseparable connection to divorce. Yet, we should also see the stars, and we will. After Jesus exposes the Pharisees' compromised view of marriage and divorce, he exalts God's view of marriage and the consequences. Next week, we'll 
get to look at the stars and the beauty of God's design and how it provides a safety net for us against divorce. Two views of marriage and divorce so that believers will embrace and exalt God's design. The first view that we'll look at, I've called it the compromise view, which exposes man's view of marriage and divorce. And here we're going to look at the interruption and the test in verses 1 and 2, then the question and answer in verses 3 and 4, followed by the conclusion nobody wants to hear in verse 5. First, the interruption and test. Look at verse 1 with me. Getting up, Jesus went from there to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Here we don't see anything out of the ordinary. Jesus was always on the move, fulfilling his ministry. He was, he was constantly on the go. We've sensed that in the Gospel of Mark. Immediately, 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 right? Used um, over a dozen times in Mark's Gospel account. He was always on the go. But the one thing that we should take notice of is Jesus' proximity, and he's getting closer to Jerusalem. In fact, if you'll just flip a page over and you look at the beginning of chapter 11, what's it say there at the, at the heading? It's the triumphal entry, which is going to mark the beginning of the end of Jesus' three-year ministry. The Pharisees have watched Jesus as he's grown in popularity and influence, and their plot to kill him seems like forever ago since we, we studied it all the way back in Mark 3, 6, that plot still continues. And his proximity and approach to Jerusalem, we can be certain, is only making them a little bit more nervous. Now they come and interrupt Jesus as he began to teach the crowd. Look at verse 2. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. In your outline, I've actually called this a test, but it's really more of a trap that is seeking to destroy Jesus. In the Greek, the word translated test or testing, depending on your translation, uh, has also been used in the past in connection with the Pharisees, like in Mark 8.12. And it was also used to describe Satan all the way back in Mark 1.13. And this is why some translations opt to use the word tempt or tempting instead. Their plot was exceptionally evil from multiple angles, which we'll see. First of all, they purposely waited to ask Jesus this question about divorce once he came into this region. Verse 1 shared that they were in the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, also known as Perea. Herod Antipas had jurisdiction over this region. And if you'll recall our study all the way back in Mark 6, it, was, it involved uh, John the Baptist, and we understood his fate, right? Embrace your fate was the title of that message. And we understood what his fate was as he was beheaded because he stood opposed to Herod Antipas and his marriage to his wife Herodias, who had been divorced from Herod Antipas's half-brother, Herod Philip. And so you'll, we, we recall the scene. Um, basically, uh, John the Baptist was sent to prison, or was imprisoned, and, 
and uh, his niece had requested at uh, her mom's request that she wanted John the Baptist's head on a platter. So now if they can trap Jesus, okay, by asking him about divorce and getting him to say something that is going to rub Herod the wrong way, well, they're hoping that Jesus is going to go ahead and meet the same fate as John the Baptist. This was a cunning and wicked plot. Another evil angle of this devilish plot was to trap Jesus in the crossfire of the religious. During this time period, there were actually two different rabbinical schools when it came to the religious leaders and rabbis that they were trained under. You had the school of Shammai, which was named after Rabbi Shammai, and then you also had the school of Hillel, which was named after Rabbi Hillel. And this was an intense rivalry. It exceeded that of USC and UCLA. Now I know some of you in the room, you, you can't imagine there possibly being a rivalry that exceeds USC and UCLA, okay? But there was. These rabbinical schools held to radically different views, and one of the views that they, that they held different views to was on divorce. Jewish law permitted divorce. But where these schools actually differed was on the grounds or reasons for ending a marriage. Listen to the descriptions. Rabbi Shammai taught that, quote, the only lawful reason a divorce could be granted was for adultery. The law commended that adulterers were to be put to death by stoning stated in Leviticus 20.10. By this time period, however, stoning for that reason had been outlawed, so divorce became the remedy for adultery in the marriage. Only the man was allowed to seek a divorce. Women could not divorce their husbands regardless of their reasons. The teachings of Shammai were followed by a small minority of the population and the religious leaders. Okay, There's one side, school of Shammai. The other, school of Hillel. Rabbi Hillel held a very liberal view on divorce. According to one commentator, he taught that a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all. If she took down her hair in public, if she was talking to another man, if she ruined a meal by burning the food or putting too much salt into it, if she spoke evil of her mother-in-law, if she was infertile, even if her husband saw a woman he thought was prettier, she could be divorced. End quote. Question for you. Which rabbi's view do you think was more popular? You guessed it. Most of the Pharisees followed the teachings of Hillel. And this is why in the parallel account in Matthew, and Matthew we know was written to a primarily Jewish audience, whereas Mark is written to a Gentile audience, but in Matthew 19.3, the Pharisees ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? So Matthew includes any reason at all. Why? Because the, the Jews would have understood that and connected, whereas the Gentiles, not so much. So the evil trap expands here for Jesus, because not only will his life be in jeopardy if he says something that, that rubs Herod the wrong way, but if he, he says something that goes against Rabbi Hillel, 
his influence, especially among the men listening to him, is going to be jeopardized. Many of whom who were probably already divorced or had been divorced. Again, a devious and wicked plot to the core. So what does Jesus do? This brings us to the question and answer, or letter B in your outline. Rather than answer from a personal perspective, Jesus brilliantly turns the table on them by asking them a question, forcing them to answer. Just like when Jesus was tempted in Matthew 4, where here he points his tempters to God's Word. Again, a principle of application for us. How does God's Word rescue you when you are tempted? When you and I are tempted to say something we shouldn't say. When we're tempted to do something that we shouldn't do. God's Word is there. God's Word is there to rescue us from temptation. This is a little aside. But let's look at verses 3 and 4. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Of course, Jesus is already aware of their compromised view of marriage and divorce. He also knows that they're going to appeal to Deuteronomy 24 and that most of them have already been married and divorced multiple times. He knows that they have distorted God's law and that they'll follow the liberal teachings of Rabbi Hillel. And his question is purposed that it makes them look at the law which they're distorting. Most Jewish leaders used Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 to teach that divorce was an obligation. However, if you read the, the passage carefully, a careful reading of the verses clearly reveals that it's not to command, recommend, or even suggest divorce. These verses are given to regulate a situation that had gotten out of hand. Listen to what one commentator shares. In ancient Israel, divorce was so out of control that men were divorcing their wives for all kinds of frivolous reasons. All a man had to do was to say to his wife three times, I divorce you. I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. That was it. And in the eyes of man, they were considered divorce. Women were being sent out of their homes by their husbands with no legal protection. End quote. As you can imagine, the, the wisdom of God bringing in this this idea to help Moses and to, to help the nation slow down, you know, to stop the bleeding of what was taking place, you at least had to get a certificate so that you just couldn't say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, right? You had to go through uh, at least some process. And we can imagine that, those of us who have been married, and those of you who will get married, there are on occasions, times where disagreements take place, where things can, on occasion, not very often, but on occasion, things can get a little heated in marriage, and you might be led to make an emotionally charged, irrational decision. Like, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. No. But that, that, that was the point. It, it, it slowed them down. It gave them a little bit of think time. 
A certificate of divorce also protected women and told society that the woman was not a harlot, but that she was free to remarry. So the law Moses gave them was given to control a sinful system that rose out of man's refusal to honor God's design and purpose for marriage. In such a situation, it should have never existed in the first place, but because of the sinfulness of the human heart, it did, and it needed to be controlled. Well, this leads us to the conclusion nobody wants to hear. And the reason why Jesus responds the way that he did, look at verse 5. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. The words this commandment, they're emphatic by their position. They're at the end of the verse in the Greek, and in most English translations, um, they, they, they come at the end, or at least in the NASB it does. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. It's at the end. It doesn't mean a commandment to divorce. And we need to understand that, for there's no such commandment. But it refers to the restrictions Moses laid down in permitting a divorce. Again, it was a concession made due to their low standard and compromised view of marriage and divorce. For the Pharisees to hide behind the concession and to lead others to do the same was an exposure of their own spiritual corruption, or as Jesus describes it, their hardness of heart. And this is a very interesting word in the Greek, sclerocardia. Okay, and it helps when we, we break it down, uh, break it in half. Sclerocardia, uh, scleros, all right, is the root from which we get sclerosis, our English word, uh, it's a Latin combination too, sclerosis, which means hardening, okay? Those, especially in a, a medically gifted church like ours, would understand that atherosclerosis, right, is talking about a hardening of the walls of the arteries, right, and cardiovascular disease. Cardia, of course, is the root for cardiac or heart. So when you put it all together, sclerocardia or cardiosclerosis means hardening of the heart. And Jesus was basically saying, because of your spiritual heart disease, Moses wrote you this concession. That's what it's saying. Because of your spiritual heart disease, Moses wrote you this concession. Any medical doctor will tell you that an unhealthy diet and a lack of exercise will make you a prime candidate for heart disease. You don't have to go to med school to understand that fundamental and basic principle of health. That if you don't eat a good diet and you don't exercise, there's a very strong and high probability that you're going to suffer from heart disease. And it's no different spiritually. It really isn't. I want you to capture this. If you're not consuming a spiritually healthy diet, nor are you exercising spiritually, you will suffer from spiritual heart disease. Jesus reminded us when he was tempted to sin, what needs to feed us? He said it when he was tempted himself, right? In Matthew 4, right? Man cannot live on bread alone. 
but he shall live on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God when he quoted Deuteronomy. Again, a passage that they would have been very familiar with. God's word is the bread of life. And spiritually, gospel-redeemed hearts need a steady diet. We need to feed on it so that we can exercise spiritually. This is fascinating to me as I was going through this study. Have you ever noticed how many physical illustrations there are in the scriptures that, that call us to action? That we're called to run the race with endurance. That we're called to put on the, the spiritual armor. That we're, 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 we're called uh, to fight the good fight of faith. To walk in love. Walk in wisdom. Walk in obedience. Walk in light. Faith requires action and Scripture is filled with spiritual exercises. And this isn't something you've heard before, but if you, if you really want to make it memorable, try to go eating without a week. Okay? Don't, just, just try to go eating, not eating, and, and fasting for a few days. Or better yet, fast for a few days and then try to go to the gym and have a really good workout. Okay? Let me know how that goes for you. I think we see the point. And I think that if we're honest, we do this all the time. We do. I know I do. We starve ourselves by not consuming God's Word, and then we try to exercise spiritually by ministering and serving others without having been nourished spiritually, and our ministry is compromised. And right about now, you might be saying, well, I, I thought this was on marriage and divorce. What does this have to do with marriage and divorce? Everything. Absolutely everything. The Pharisees' compromised spiritual condition led to a compromised view of marriage and divorce. Their spiritual heart disease, disease led them to be unwilling to forgive their wives for overcooking a meal or putting a little too much salt in the meal. I mean, think about how ridiculous that is. I mean, think about it. The degree of pride and sinfulness that this involves. How this grieved the heart of Yahweh, the God of Israel, who was willing to forgive all their sins. We, we even saw a reflection of that in the psalm that we read at the beginning of the service. A willingness to forgive their sins. Yet they couldn't get past or, for, or, or forgive their spouses for even the smallest of faults. Psalm 32 says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. They were familiar with this passage. They knew it. Oh yeah, it's about David. And yeah, his sin. Yes. How blessed is the man who's forgiven. And they wanted the blessing of God's forgiveness. They wanted their sin to be covered. But they were unwilling to extend that forgiveness even to their spouse. 
And Jesus is letting them know that this is not okay. This is not how it works. When the righteous man lives by faith, this will lead to practicing mercy and grace and forgiveness toward others. They had deceit rooted in their heart. Because of their hardness of heart, their stubborn and obstinate nature, Jesus charges them with being insensitive to the need for unselfish love as well as to the call of God to a higher view of marriage. And don't think for a moment that a compromised view of marriage and divorce can't creep into the church today. Because it can. How are compromises made? Just listen to some of these common unbiblical compromises that have led some believers to pursue a divorce. My feelings have changed. I've fallen out of love with her. I'm setting this up on purpose. And then I'm also bringing to bear how God will respond to a heart that says that. God's Word responds. Proverbs 28.26 says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. You trust in your own heart? Your own feelings? You allow that to govern your steps? Proverbs says you're a fool. Jesus says in Matthew 24.12, describing the last days, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. It's so important, church. And you'll hear this in counseling, and perhaps you haven't been in a counseling situation where you have heard it, and I've shared it from the pulpit before, but we're governed by truth, right? Truth governs us. Truth guides. It's not to minimize feelings and to say that they're not important. They are, but as it relates to decisions, especially as it relates to, to, to love, agape love is not a feeling. It's a choice. It's a decisional love. Here's another one. My spouse has killed all the love I ever had for him. God's Word responds, 1 Corinthians 13, 5 and 6. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Again, there you have it right there at agape love. Truth. It's truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And oh, how many of us have it... This might even take you back. You had the scripture read at your wedding, right? So many that have, right? We had to cling to that truth. And divine love is a fruit of the Spirit that cannot be killed if you're walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Through the gospel, God changed our hearts so that we can extend divine love. This type of love, especially to our spouses. This is exactly why Ephesians 5.25 is given to husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Titus 2.4, 
encourages older women so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands. It's there. Here's another one. It's not good for the children to have... I, I, I really... This one I enjoy. It is not good for the children to have to live in a home with so much conflict, hatred, and disharmony. It's just absolutely no good for the children. Well, then maybe you should change. Right? Who's, who's the one creating it? Who's the one responsible for it? Whose eyes are God focused on in the situation? The kids? No. No. He's looking at you first, husband. Primarily, spiritual leader, father, leader of forgiveness, leader of love, leader in the home. And he's also holding you accountable as well, wife. God would agree with you. And this is Ephesians 4.3, being diligent. It takes effort. Being diligent to preserve uh, the, the, the spirit of unity in the bond of peace. There, there's effort that's required. We know this uh, in, in the relationship. And this leads us to the next compromise that comes up. I'm tired of trying. God's word responds. Listen to this. Hebrews 12, 1 through uh, 12, but I'll, I'll just read the first uh, few verses. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and it's the hall of faith uh, in, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, where you see all these great men who persevered and were led by the Lord to persevere in faith. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And yeah, when marriage is difficult, can we be tempted to lose heart? We can, right? And we, we do need to, to, to follow Hebrews 12 and see the example of Christ that goes on to say this in verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Wow. And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And I can't imagine, you know, yeah, I'm tired of trying. Look at the cross, and I want you to say repeatedly, as you look at the cross and you meditate the reality of what Christ did on that cross, how many times you can say, I'm tired of trying. 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 You can't. You can't do it. You can't look at him 
And you can't see what he endured in the hostility and have that. It will, it will, if you are a born-again believer, it will hijack your soul so that you will be fueled and say, I can and I will trust you. It's hard, but I will trust you. And this is the remedy for all of life in our spiritual walk, not just, not just marriage. Those who have been in my office recently, I put up a sign. You can see it in there. It says that God doesn't give us what we can handle. God helps us handle what we are given. That's what the, the sign says. How many times have you heard, uh, maybe even another Christian say, well, God doesn't give us more than, than we can handle. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. By divine design. Believer, he gives us more than we can handle so that we will rely upon him in faith and that we will not function in a spirit of pride and independence and say, who needs the Lord? Like a man with wealth. You know, I, don't, I, got, I can buy whatever I need. Who needs the Lord, right? That's a lie from the world that embraces poor theology. By divine design, God gives us more than we can handle so that we'll trust Him and walk by faith. And when we're tempted to quit, when we're tempted to stop trying, 1 Corinthians 10.13, which at the heart of the verse says, God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you're able to do, but He will provide the way of escape. He will. He will give you the way out. Right? He does give us more. But then he also gives us the way out. He will help you handle whatever you're given in your marriage, in your job, in your family relationships, and whatever might come your way to fulfill his purposes in you. Well, our time has disappeared very quickly, but here are just a few more compromises, and I won't have time to read the scriptures. I have peace about it. Yeah, Jonah had peace about his decision too when he ran the other way from Nineveh, right? Fell asleep on the boat. He was at peace about it. You know how that proved to be God's will, not, right? Romans 14, 22 and 23, Colossians 3, 15, good verses. How about this one? He has lied to me repeatedly. I will never be able to trust him again. I cannot continue to live in the constant state of confusion that this marriage keeps me in. I've lived with him for umpteen years and I know that he will never change. My family and friends are all advising me to get out of this horrible marriage. Compromises. Compromises, compromises, compromises. And you know what? There's scriptures that speak to each and every one. God's word has a response for each compromise that our hearts may be tempted to make when it comes to marriage and divorce. And the Lord has helped us see this. Just in his response in verse 5, he's helped us see this, but he's not even done yet. We've looked at the mud of mankind's view or compromised view of marriage and divorce. And next Sunday, our study of this passage continues and we're going to get a chance to look at the stars. 
We'll look at God's design for marriage and how his divine design for marriage protects against divorce and a compromised view. We're also going to spend some time next Sunday, and it might involve us going to the following Sunday, talking and covering biblical grounds for divorce and the New Testament concessions that God provides for believers in certain situations. When our time is up and we still need to celebrate communion, so I want to, in a hurry, invite our worship team to come on up real quickly. I'm going to pray and we'll give some more instruction about communion as soon as we're done praying. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we bow our heads realizing that spiritual heart disease is prevalent and is an, an abnormality that every human heart is born with. And it's only through the gospel, it's only through Christ that we can be given a new nature, a new heart. A heart of stone can be turned into a heart of flesh. And it's only in having a heart of flesh, a soft heart, a spiritually led heart, that we can stay away from a compromised view of marriage and divorce. And we recognize that. I pray, Father, for everyone in our church family that has been impacted by divorce at some level, that you would encourage them by putting your faithfulness on display even through what we're praying right now, that there's hope, that there's forgiveness, that there's redemption. And through it all, you will prove yourself faithful. We ask, Father, that now, as we turn our attention towards celebrating communion, that we could be consumed with the reality of the cross so that we wouldn't grow weary, that we wouldn't lose heart, and that this ordinance, this remembrance, could allow our hearts to be greatly encouraged to embrace the struggles, and the things that you would have us persevere through as we trust you. Again, we look forward to seeing how you bless our time. We commit it to your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.